This is episode three in a multi-part series. We are releasing new episodes of this case each week. In February, we will return to our usual release schedule of the 1st and the 15th. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already In October of 2000, Justin Mello went to work at his part-time job at Mancino's Pizza and Grinders, a popular pizza place in his hometown of New Baltimore, Michigan. While his co-worker was out on a delivery, 16-year-old Justin, who was alone in the store, was led into the restaurant cooler where he was shot execution-style. This senseless crime shook the city, and a six-department task force worked to investigate the crime and bring his killer or killers to justice. When we last spoke, newspapers were reporting that two Anchor Bay natives had been arrested in Kentucky after a multi-state crime spree that left at least one person dead. We left the story in late November of 2000, with Frank and Jonathan awaiting their next court date. In order to tell this next part of the story, we have to go back in time to August of 2000, before Justin was murdered and before the town of New Baltimore was rocked by his sudden and senseless death. Come with me as we turn back the clock and meet these new suspects before anyone knew what they were capable of. Twenty-year-old Dennis Bryan and 19-year-old David Bauman were from Fairhaven and Chesterfield Township, respectively, and they had both worked at Mancino's in New Baltimore in 1999 before leaving to work at another, similar pizza store, Woody's, in nearby Marine City. As far as I can tell from the reporting, there were no issues with either young man during their time at Mancino's, and they appear to have left the branch amicably. Dennis was hired as the manager of Woody's, and he invited his good friend David to be his right-hand man, giving him the assistant manager position. Being the manager and assistant manager... That involves a high level of trust from the owner, and Mark Mahaffey, proprietor of Woody's, was happy to put that trust into Dennis and David. As part of their role, they were in charge of the bank deposits, which required them to go to the bank every night after their shift and deliver the evening's cash and receipts to the night deposit slot. According to police records, these deposits stopped around July 26th. However, Mark wouldn't notice that the money was missing for almost two weeks. On August 7th of 2000, Dennis and David worked their shift, as usual, and they left with the takings, again, as usual, and they added them to the takings from the past couple of weeks, leaving them with approximately $15,000 to $20,000, money they had gradually embezzled. Each night, instead of depositing the whole take, they either deposited a portion of it or none at all, keeping that cash for themselves. When Mark, the owner of Woody's, arrived on August 8th, He was expecting to work a shift alongside Dennis and David, but they didn't show up. You see, Dennis and David had taken that money and started driving east. Before they left, Dennis wrote a letter to his dad and stepmom, saying that he was leaving for a fresh start, and he wrote a note to his girlfriend saying that he loved her. David, David didn't leave a note, 
but he did take his father's credit card from its hiding spot in a jewelry box. Two days later, on the 10th, the pair were in Bristol, Virginia, where they decided they needed some guns. According to Dennis, he waited in the car while David entered Sam's gun shop with a knife concealed in a sheath around his neck. David then stabbed the clerk, 63-year-old Norman Pelfrey, in the neck before collecting over a dozen guns, which he shoved into a black bag. Then he walked out of the store, leaving Norman to bleed to death on the shop floor. Among the dozen weapons he procured that night, there were several 9 millimeters, which, you will remember, is the type of gun used to kill Justin Mello. From Bristol, the pair drove on I-81. They stopped at a rest area to clean themselves up and get the blood out of their clothes before detouring to Little Switzerland, North Carolina, where they spent the night. By the 14th, Dennis and David were 500 miles away in St. Augustine, Florida. While in Florida, David said that Dennis pulled the trigger in a robbery-turned-murder at a local Subway sandwich shop. 22-year-old Lee Pennington was closing the store alone when Dennis entered the business around 11.30 p.m. Lee was taken into the back of the store, forced into the cooler, and shot. On his way out of the business, Dennis robbed the register of its contents, a measly $40. Then he fled the scene. While there was a working security camera system, the killer was masked, which made identifying them nearly impossible from the tape alone. Early reporting in Source 31 stated that the killers were masked, suggesting that both David and Dennis were in the subway shop that night. And listeners, you're probably feeling the same way I did when I found out about this robbery and murder, and you've noticed its similarities to Justin's death. Late at night, a young man alone at a quick-service restaurant is taken into the cooler and shot at close range before the killer or killers made off with a small amount of cash. You're probably thinking, as I did, that once the new Baltimore police learned of this crime, they would have an instant interest in Dennis and David for Justin's murder. But the crime spree did not stop there. Over the course of the next two months, they robbed multiple motels, each time getting away with a few hundred dollars, enough to see them through until their next opportunity arose. A warrant was issued for their arrest after a robbery at a Comfort Inn in Streetsboro, Ohio in mid-October. However, the pair evaded capture until November. On November 22nd, the same day that charges were dropped against Matthew in New Baltimore, Dennis and David were in Williamsburg, Kentucky. David went to the local Super 8 motel and robbed the front desk at gunpoint, getting away with nearly $300. He did this while Dennis waited at a nearby Dairy Queen restaurant police managed to quickly track down David, finding him in the front seat of a Pontiac Firebird with the cash from the motel and a gun. Dennis was arrested soon after in the Dairy Queen parking lot, and both men were taken into custody. Their three-month, 37-state crime spree had finally come to an end. Police searched the Firebird and found multiple guns, knives, masks, stolen plates, fake IDs, plus a map with their route highlighted, and three cities highlighted with pink dots, Bristol, Virginia, St. Augustine, Florida, and New Baltimore, Michigan. Again, listeners, you may be thinking what I was, that the pink dots each signified a murder. Norman at the gun store in Bristol, Lee at the subway in St. Augustine, and Justin at the Mancinos in New Baltimore. 
Williamsburg police, of course, asked about the map and the highlighter and were met with noncommittal answers. The pair were already suspected for the murder in Bristol, so police were fairly certain why that city was circled. However, they did not know about the connections to either of the other places. Information about their arrest was shared with police from the lower 48 states and investigators from around the country began to make connections with recent unsolved cases from their districts. Officers from St. Augustine traveled to Williamsburg to interview the pair about the murder of Lee Pennington. Eventually, they admitted that the St. Augustine dot was to show, quote, the subway thing. But they said the dot over New Baltimore represented a drug deal they'd done there, and they said they didn't know anything about Justin's murder. The Commonwealth of Virginia started the extradition process so that David and Dennis could stand trial for Norman's murder. They wanted to get in early because they assumed that more charges would start to be filed and more states would start their own extradition processes. Virginia prosecutors wanted to be sure the men would be held accountable for the crime and the case wouldn't be left waiting for years while other states prosecuted first. If convicted of murder in Virginia, the men would face the death penalty. Which brings us back to where we left off in episode two. Headlines about Dennis and David's crime spree began to appear in newspapers all over the country, and lawyers for Frank and Jonathan were optimistic that these new suspects would take the heat from their clients. As a reminder, the Macomb County prosecutor had no physical evidence tying Frank or Jonathan to the murder of Justin Mello. Both men said that their confessions were coerced, and the eyewitnesses linking them to the crime were recanting at an alarming rate. Undeterred, the judge had decided to continue with the court case against Frank and Jonathan, although he had no choice but to drop the charges against Matthew, the only one of the trio who had not given a confession to the crime. Lawyers for the defense were hopeful that the new developments would go a long way in exonerating their clients. New Baltimore police, on the other hand, they were steadfast in their belief that they already had the right men in custody. Chief Bolger said that the FBI would be interviewing Dennis and David about Justin's murder, but he didn't think the interview would provide any leads in the Mello case, as there was no evidence they were in the area the night of Justin's death. Dennis and David left Michigan in August. There was nothing to show that they had returned, although it did later surface that the map with the highlighted routes did suggest they may have doubled back to Michigan at some point. Frank and Jonathan's arraignment went ahead a week later than planned, on December 18th. I'm sure both of their families would hoping the new suspects in the crime would mean the teenagers would be home for Christmas. However, it was not to be. Frank's lawyer asked that Frank be released on a $25,000 bail until the next hearing in late January. But this was denied with the judge citing Frank's confession as the reason for denying the request. The teenagers returned to jail and spent the holidays awaiting their next court date. In the meantime, ballistics tests on the 9mm guns found in David and Dennis's possession came back. The guns were not a match for the bullet that killed Justin, and Source 42 reported that they were ruled out as suspects. Dennis and David were extradited to Virginia to stand trial, and court proceedings against Frank and Jonathan continued. While Jonathan wouldn't be back in court until late January, Frank next appeared on January 11th. You see, when he was arrested, Frank had a joint in his pocket, a fairly minor crime when you're facing a murder charge, 
but a crime nonetheless and one that would go to trial. Although Frank's lawyer said he would represent his client on this lesser charge, he was not told of the court date and Frank's trial was held without counsel present. At the trial, Frank received a one-year sentence, the maximum allowed for the crime. Frank's lawyer appealed the sentence as his client was not properly informed of his rights due to not having legal representation, and a new trial was granted. Due to a clerical error, there was no record of the trial, and the judge agreed that the lawyer should have been allowed to attend. Frank was granted a new hearing for the charge to be held later in the year. While the case was running its course in the courts, the media was continuing to report on the story, and the reporting featured quotes from the trial judge. During the pretrial hearings, the judge, Paul Cassidy, did not hold back in his judgments about the three men calling Matthew a miscreant and referring to all three as murderers. These are huge red flags and show clearly that the judge's mind was made up before the actual trial had even started. And the lawyers for the defense thought that the quotes were enough to have the judge taken off the case. This motion to disqualify the judge appears to have worked, as there was a different judge, Pat D'Onofrio, presiding over the next hearing. At the suppression hearing, the new judge heard from Jonathan and Frank about their confessions. Jonathan testified that he was approached by officers outside his home and instructed to go with them to the station. Jonathan said that he was yelled at, called a liar, and told that he wouldn't fare well in prison. During the six-hour interrogation, he was questioned by officers from several branches of law enforcement. Jonathan recounted how he was brought to tears and how he begged to speak to his mother. Officers said that his mom didn't want to speak to him, which was plainly not true. She was repeatedly calling the station asking to speak with her son. She was only told that he was cooperating and that she should be proud. When Jonathan was told that Frank and Matthew had ratted him out and provided statements, he broke down and confessed. He just wanted them to leave him alone, and he thought that they would if he just told them what they wanted to hear. He didn't want to go to jail, and he thought that if he cooperated, he would be okay. Frank told a similar story of a lengthy interrogation where he decided to confess because he was scared. Frank said that an officer shook his chair and threatened physical harm if he didn't start telling the truth. John backed this up, saying he heard the threat through the wall. According to Frank, the officers convinced him that he had repressed memory of the murder and said that it was common with traumatic events. He then told the police that he drove Jonathan to Mancino's and provided some extra detail, saying the weapon was a 9mm. Frank said that police had already told him what the murder weapon was, so he knew to include that information. During Frank's testimony, he changed his story and became confused a couple of times, which his lawyer said was proof that Frank could get things muddled and would be able to be coerced. Three days of testimony came to a close, and the closing statements were made in writing and submitted to a judge. The defense's closing statement, including precedents from the Supreme Court showing that confessions gained through physical or mental means, are not admissible. During the long wait for the judge's ruling on the hearing, another discovery was made. Further testing of the weapons found with Dennis and David revealed that one of the guns did in fact match the bullets that killed Justin. Now they had a murder weapon. Despite this new physical evidence, evidence that should have exonerated the teenagers and released them from custody, 
prosecutors still plan to go ahead with the trial against Frank and Jonathan set for March 27th. In a statement, police said they were happy the weapon had been recovered and that they had never stopped looking for it, but they were working with the theory that Frank and Jonathan were the killers. Their focus then turned to finding a connection between the two sets of suspects. However, no link was apparent apart from one pair confessing and the other pair having the murder weapon. Further, police made the argument that since Daniel and Dennis had confessed to two other murders, surely they would confess to Justin's if they were responsible. To police, it didn't make sense to confess to some crimes and not to others. In light of the murder weapon being found, the judge decided to postpone Frank and Jonathan's trial indefinitely and said he would consider releasing them on bond. He recommended that police continue to investigate the murder, this time with a focus on Dennis and Daniel. In addition to the murder weapon, testing was underway on a backpack that had been found with Dennis and Daniel. The backpack had several bloodstains on it, one of which was Norman's from the gun store killing, and the others were being tested to see if they could be a match to Justin Mello. As Frank and Jonathan sat in jail, working their way through the legal system, there was a major development in the case that would change everything. And listeners, we'll be right back. On April 18, 2001, David Bauman took a plea. He confessed to his part in the murder of Justin Mello, saying that the robbery and murder took place with Dennis. Dennis was not cooperative. As part of his confession, David said that Frank and Jonathan were never involved. In exchange for cooperating with the New Baltimore Police, the death penalty was taken off the table in Virginia. Not wanting to face death row and having nothing left to lose, David decided to take the deal and tell the authorities the truth. David's confession was considered credible, as he was able to provide details of the crime that had not been released to the public. David underwent a polygraph test where he was asked if he killed Justin. He said yes, and the answer was read as the truth. He was then asked if he killed Justin with Dennis, and again, the answer was read as the truth. When asked if he knew the original three suspects, the answer was analyzed and found inconclusive. David was able to provide details about the fake pizza order phone call. According to David, after the pair arrived at Mancino's, Dennis stood watch while he took Justin out the back and into the cooler. While in the cooler, he took Justin's wallet from his pocket, ripping the pocket in the process. This ripped pocket? It was one of the details that had not been released to the public. Only Justin's killer would have that information. As well as knowing about the ripped pocket, David was also able to describe the wallet. He said that he disposed of the cards by ripping them up and flushing them at some stage after the murder, but he didn't give any exact details. Justin's wallet was kept, and it was among the items found with the men when they were arrested. David was also able to prove that he and Dennis were in the area at the time of the murder, with their fake IDs being used at an accommodation in Roseville a Macomb County town 22 miles south of New Baltimore. The pair stayed in Roseville from the 18th until the 22nd of October. Shortly after this confession, David was sentenced to life in prison in Virginia for the murder of Norman Pelfrey at the gun store. The prosecutor in Michigan was asked to comment on David facing charges in Michigan for Justin's murder, 
but the prosecutor wasn't sure if charges would be laid. For one, David would have the opportunity to go to trial and mount a defense, which would likely hinge on Frank and Jonathan's confessions. And there was a chance that David would be found not guilty. With David already serving life in prison in Virginia, there didn't seem to be much point, from a legal standpoint, of filing charges in Michigan. With David's confession on the record, as well as the other evidence pointing to him being the killer, the prosecutor for the case recommended that Frank and Jonathan be released, because their guilt couldn't be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. He then said he would be filing for the charges to be dismissed. Frank and Jonathan's families were over the moon at the thought of getting their boys home again, and they started to plan for their release. They didn't have to wait long. The next day, Thursday, April 19th, Frank and Jonathan were released on bond. The judge said, hey, the process isn't over, and cautioned them to stay out of trouble, to remain in the state of Michigan, and to stay away from felons. Meanwhile, Dennis still needed to be interviewed again to see if he would cooperate and if his story would match David's. If it did, it was looking very likely that Frank and Jonathan's charges would be dropped. If the story didn't match up, the prosecutor would still take Frank and Jonathan to trial with the confessions as the main evidence against them. The prosecutor said they had other evidence, such as Frank and Jonathan asking about the Mancino security system, and them having knowledge of the fake pizza order, as well as knowledge of Justin's wallet. However, the men either denied they told the police these things, or they said they did, but they were fed the information by the police prior to giving their confession. Once the boys were released from custody, they had some catching up to do. Jonathan opened his Christmas gifts with his family while surrounded by Easter decorations, and he was thrilled with the most simple gift. Even sunflower seeds made him happy. In interviews, the men spoke of their plans for the future, furthering their education and putting the whole ordeal behind them. Justin's family, who had been increasingly quiet as the legal process wore on, said in a statement that they didn't want anyone who was innocent to be held, and they didn't want anyone who was guilty to be released. Justin's father agreed that there wasn't enough evidence to hold the teens any longer. However, he was not yet convinced of their innocence. He still thought they could be connected in some way, even if they weren't the ones who fired the weapon. Justin's mother said that after months of thinking that Frank and Jonathan were the ones who killed her son, it was hard for her to make a mental shift to new suspects. And listeners, you can only imagine how the Mello family was struggling, not only with their loss, but with the way the case was playing out in the press. For the Mello family, the shift to new suspects was made harder by the fact that David, he was friends with their daughter Leah, and there's a chance that he had visited the Mello home in the past, although Leah wasn't completely sure if he'd been there or not. And while David and Leah drifted apart once David started using drugs, there was a period just a couple of years earlier where the two were close friends. The following day, April 20th, Dennis confessed to his role in Justin's murder. Motions were filed to drop the charges against Frank and Jonathan as soon as the news reached the county prosecutor. Ten days later, charges were officially dropped after another short review of the evidence and witness statements. Although the prosecutor was dismissing the charges, he did it in such a way that they could be refiled at a later date if needed. He left that door open for the courts. 
As well as dropping the charges, the prosecutor wrote letters to police chiefs hoping they would learn from the mistakes made in the investigation and start recording all interrogations so they would have evidence of the conversations. For Frank, Jonathan, and even Matthew, who had been freed earlier but had struggled to fit back into society and was still viewed as a suspect, the charges being dropped were a sign that they could leave the ordeal of the past six months behind them. Matthew, who had attempted to sign up for an educational course and had been rejected because of how he was viewed after his release, he got a phone call from the superintendent who said that Matthew could enroll in the course and start over the summer. However, Metro Detroit media was like a dog with a bone, and articles continued to be published pointing out the perceived inaccuracies in the case. The peace and freedom that they all hoped to enjoy was still months away. We'll be back next week with the final episode in this series. This episode was written by Jessica Ann and Nina Instead. Researched by Jessica Ann and Nina Instead. Production support by Olivia Holmesley. Audio editing by Bill Burt. We have a source list for this case posted on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.